Welcome to the Outdoor Country Talk Podcast, hosted by Jacob Poole and Jeremy Shaw, where we bring country living and the great outdoors together. All right, well, thank you for tuning in to another episode of Outdoor Country Talk with your host, Jacob Poole, and myself, Jeremy Shaw. Oh, we're on a roll this week, man. I know they're going to be spaced out, but man, we're getting some recording in this week. We are, and it's actually amazing to me that you know, the week of Christmas, which I figure everybody would be so, so busy. You know, we've had more people reach back out and say, hey, man, I can record this week. You know, does this work for you? And it's like, yeah, yeah, we we, we would love to get your story and get it on, you know, while it fits in a time frame for you. Because, you know, a lot of folks that we we interview, their downtime's during the summer. This is their busiest time. So you're trying to get right. an outfitter or a guide or a you know, somebody in the hunting industry that has a product or something that they do, this is their busiest time. So if they're really doing any type of marketing or advertising or, or telling their story, they want to do it when they don't have a lot going on, not when they're, you know, at their busiest. So That's right. That's right. I, yeah, I'm looking forward to this episode. I know I, I wasn't able to, to make it for the last one, but uh but yeah, part two here. I'm I'm excited to hear about you know, the rest of the story and, uh, and see where that goes. Well, anybody that listened to the first episode, and if you haven't, you know, go back and listen to it. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Podbean. You know, if you missed it on local radio, I'm sorry, it just, it's gone. Uh, you'll have to pick it up on one of the other, <laughs> other locations. But, you know, we have Mr. Kim with Show Me Birds on, and Mr. Kim has a very unique story and a very unique opportunity that he offers hunters to come out and and have an experience like they've never had before i know i've been out there before and you know in all the things i've ever done i'd never done anything like this before so it just you know it adds to that that mystery adds to that excitement as a hunter as a shooter you know somebody who wants to especially if you love to wing shoot if you love to wing shoot this is probably the premier place in the country that i've ever been to to come and experience some of the best wing shooting that you can possibly find because it's not a, if you're going to have targets to find, it's going, if you're actually going to hit them or not. So, you know, the birds are there. That's a guarantee. The question is whether or not you can actually load your gun fast enough and get on them to be able to, to make contact with them. So, but in the first episode, Mr. Kim kind of led us through how he got started and kind of walked us up to where his program is today. And, and that story is very, very unique. So, you know, like I say, folks, if you missed it, make sure you go back and listen to it and it'll tie it all together for you. But Mr. Kim, are you still with us? I'm still here, buddy. How you doing? <laughs> I'm good. The Folgers coffee hadn't killed you today. <laughs> no. <laughs> it's not very often you get choked on Folgers, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm good to go now. Well, well, I was going to say, he may be on his third cup by now after we had the little intro and everything. We had a time to get another cup in. <laughs> Let's hope not. And I'm going to bet he's wired on two. I don't know if we want him on three. Yeah, you thought that first show, you just had to sit back and fall asleep. The second show, I even talked more. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is technically your show. That's what we tell everybody that comes on. You know, they're like, well, what do you want to talk about? It's whatever you want to talk about. It's your show. If you want to, 
you you want to tell us about the new pickup truck you bought? That's fine. You know, I mean, it's <laughs> you know what its what its purpose is in your hunting strategy. Then then all, by all means, but uh, you know, it, it's well, your see, show. My, my wife and I just celebrated our fiftieth wedding anniversary, and she's not in the office right now. So I'm thinking with Christmas coming up, and she never got me a Christmas present. I'm thinking I could talk about my wife. Well, there you go. I, uh-huh. For anybody that knows you that's listening to this, they're going to try to figure out is how that poor lady has made it 50 years <laughs> with you. I mean, that's a long time. That's what she tells all the hunters. Yeah, she should be given <laughs> a, some kind of a, you know, marital award or something, you know. <laughs> well, and I'm sure in those 50 years, she's actually liked you in a few of them. Uh, a couple of days, yeah. Loved you the whole time, but actually liked you in a few of them. That's what my wife claims anyway. She's always told everybody the guy's been a professional hunter all of his life. The great thing about our marriage, I never had to worry about having something for supper. He's always bringing something home to build dress. <laughs> Maybe that's the secret. Yeah. That's how we started back in the caves. We put meat on the table. There you go. Well, there you go. With your operation today, I'm going to guess she's going to get a little tired of eating pheasant. Well, that's what we thought back in April when I had to contract $400,000 in birds. We're going to be eating pheasant every day for the rest of our life. That was her comment. Yeah, you're going to know how to cook down from the feet to the tail to (laughs) every end of it. You will, uh, and you know, we left off on the last episode kind of right here where you were you were with your, your growers and trying to decide if if y'all were even going to have a season. And you know, you're talking about $400,000 of birds. That's a large investment and a large on, on your end and on their end because that, that affects their livelihood and your livelihood. So I'm going to guess that was not an easy decision to come to. No, no, they all... Uh, live about three hours away from me, and that's all the conversation was. I can't do this over the telephone. You know, it's April. The virus stuff is just getting blown up like it was, and uh, we got to we got to talk. We're on our way out to see you, and went out and sat down at the kitchen table with all of them. And great people. They've got my genetic bird. They've got my feed program, my feed ingredients, everything that we talked about in the first episode. You know, and things that I spent. 30 years developing and I gave it to them and I said, Hey, you know, you can't sell it unless I approve it. This is my trademark. This is my, my 30 years of work, but I want my bird delivered to me every time I order and being, you know, the biggest buyer in the country, they, Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Whatever you want. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And at $400,000 worth of birds, I've added to that contract two times, increased the numbers two times through all this, you know, traumatic thing that the country's going through and would have done three times, but I've already bought them out. So, uh, it's pretty much what we got is what we got. So, <clears throat> but it's been, been great. Like I said, in the first half, it saved me from, as I mentioned earlier, six and a half miles of flight pens to take care of a big hatchery, hatching 25,000 peasant chicks every week. All the drama and stress of running all that, the people that raise the birds now don't do hunting. So, uh, 
we just cut the overhead, you know, the, not the overhead, but the work level in half. And back with all the health issues I had six years ago that I talked about earlier, it was the wisest move I ever had. I, I told all my employees I'm going to have to lock the door and say goodbye or we're going to go down to Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Mondays and give me some time off in the middle of the week. And they all just, we fully understand, boss, whatever you need to do. So well, but now, it worked out really well. But when you say I'm going to take a few days off the middle of the week, you're still not off. Oh, no. Oh, no. They're just not hunters knocking on the door. <laughs> yeah, you're only stopping yeah, I'm not one, going nowhere. <laughs> yeah, you're only stopping one aspect of it. You you just don't have hunters on premises, but you've still got phones ringing. You've still got, you know, stations yeah. need to be cleaned up. You've got dogs need to be worked. You've got plenty of cleaning up and, and getting ready for the next group coming in. So, really, you're just kind of, you know, taking a, a couple prep days to get ready for the next show gives you time to take that deep breath, you know, type deal. And, and just like a football, you know, we play today and we're off for a few days, take a deep breath, figure out what we did wrong, what we did right. And then let's go play again, you know, on the same type of deal. Uh, but, uh, you know, as I mentioned earlier, to have $900,000 in overhead, you're open 150 days. That's a lot of stress. A lot of people have seasonal businesses. Look at country clubs, you know, look at, uh, swimming pools, you know, and all this stuff. They all have seasonal businesses. And same thing we were doing here. But uh, unfortunately, operation costs aren't seasonal. I yeah. wish the state, of, the state of Kansas would believe that for property tax. <laughs> but they don't. It's, it's not seasonal tax. It's all year long. Utility bills, all that kind of stuff. It just goes on and on and on. That's a year-round expense but your chance to get that money back and hopefully make a profit in the seasonal business can be a real struggle so all that happens basically within 150 days of the year right that's the only time that you can be open because you're regulated by the department of wildlife you know to right. uh, legal you know we start first of october and go to mid-march in kansas where we're located we can hunt clear to the end of april but that just Kansas, uh, you know, who wants to hunt a hen pheasant that's got eggs in her? You know, the breeding cycles already started, so I don't go that far. I shut down the middle of October, you know, when the birds are still healthy and everything's still normal and, you know, nature hadn't taken over again, as right. I call it. So nature doesn't realize there's hunting seasons, you know, so, um, but it still gives us, uh, you know, around 150 days to, to make all this happen when you open mid-October, so. Well, Mr. Kim, we talked about this a little bit on the first episode, and you and I have talked about it, you know, and Jeremy talked about it off the air. But, you know, once hunting season starts, you run a very large number of hunters through your place in that 150 days. How many yes. how many hunters are you seeing that you're feeding, that you're you're doing everything for in that 150 days? Uh, most years this year will be a little bit higher because, uh, we're higher than normal because of the virus and things has increased our business. But on an average, we will run bad winters, bad weather, 2,800, 900 hunters, normal winter, normal weather, 3,000 to 3,200 hunters in, 
100. Well, technically, that's part of the downsize. We were doing 5,000 when we were hunting seven days a week. But considering the downsizing, we're looking at months. Now we look at days. Days are most Fridays, Saturdays, Sundays, Mondays. So basically three to three and a half days a week, we're running over 3,000 hunters. Wow. In three days a week. So if you got 22 weeks, three days a week, 66 days, pack in some uh, Fridays, and that's where you get the 3,000 hunters. So, Wow. it's a lot. Yeah, and that's a lot of logistics <laughs> just getting them there, just trying to get everybody organized on dates and getting them, you know, because they need to know what shells to bring if they're not buying shells there from you. You know, you're, you're organizing birds, you're organizing bird dogs, your guides, you know. Yeah, that's a a full-time schedule, even though it is part-time. <laughs> yeah, you don't you don't leave the office. Excitement for me is to get in the truck and go to Sam's Club and pick up supplies and get back here and find 50 phone calls you missed. That's, ex- <laughs> that's excitement for me at this age. Yeah, yeah. Don't well, turn your passion... Passion into your occupation is what I tell everybody. All right. I want to do would be hunt for a living. That's all I ever wanted to do. Y'all may have covered this in the first episode, but how many employees do you have throughout your season? With everything's contract labor because we're a seasonal business, obviously. Right. And back when we were hunting um, seven days a week, we had around 70, 71. They're on the back of my brochure. Now that we are uh, three days a week, that's probably been cut in half. That's counting dog handlers. What what I call frontline staff. Frontline staff is our traditional field hunt guides, hunt masters that run the European shoot. Uh, then there's you know thirty forty dog handlers. So all together, there you come when I need you. I call you a week ahead of time. That type of thing. So luckily they're all contract labor. So. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's a it's a sizable number, and they all love it. Where do you go to be paid to hunt? And the guides are are paid by us. And uh, you know, we have different size hunt packages. We we start out with what we call the basic four bird hunt, which is just our you know basic hunt. But that comes with a farm just for your group, and comes with a professional guide, all the gun dogs, and these dogs see dogs see birds that you just can't comprehend compared to normal dog work because they're in birds all the time they're in the field and lunch bird cleaning group photo no bag limit if you get into extra birds above and beyond your hunt packages they're free most places do a per bird charge for every bird that you shoot i don't believe in that you're on vacation and we call this disneyland for hunters you go from one ride to the next so if you're on vacation, I don't want you to worry about what's it going to cost if I shoot that bird at dog's point. I don't want you stressing. You're having fun. So all hunts are no bag limit. And then we do the four bird hunt. We do a five, six, seven, eight, and 16, what we call the lead package. So we try to have something for everybody's budget, everybody's wants and needs. You know, people come from Mississippi, come from all over the country, and they want you know enjoyment when they get here. And then other people come from Springfield, Missouri, or Tulsa, Oklahoma, you know, 90 minutes away, and they come five times a year. They want more hunt time. 
So I just try to have a hunt for everybody. So then the European shoots, they start out at 15 pheasants per person times 20 people makes a 300 bird shoot. That's the smallest shoot that we do. We go from that to 400, 500, 750, and 1,000 birds in three hours. Uh, that's wow. what Jacob came out and did. Yeah. I've got pictures here in the office of 1,000 bird shoots where they're shooting 9,750 shells, and another one shot 39 cases, and another one shot 9,000 shells. And that's what he was talking about earlier was how the – it's an Argentina – dove hunt without an airline ticket <laughs> <laughs> that's a very good way of describing that <laughs> there you go well yeah, it's do you still have a, a unique thing you know you've got the european shoots running parallel side by side to the traditional field hunts with a pointing dog i tell everybody it's like bowling and golf they're both done with balls but they're totally different games these are both done with pheasants but they're totally different games. So it, it's just so unique and still be related, you know. So it's it makes a pretty unique resort. And then there's three clay target ranges. We have an Olympic skeet range up at the fishing operation. We've got stock fishing ponds up at uh, the pavilion area. And then we have wobble trap, which is just like a pheasant getting up in front of you, a big machine moving back and forth, up and down, right beside the clubhouse. And then on the other side of the clubhouse is Pheasant Fury, world's largest cubby rise. It can do 160 clay targets in 60 seconds. Ten men with a box of shells equals a case of shells. And at full auto, full flurry, they're out of shells in three to five minutes. We've learned not to do that because we've got to go out and pick up all the clay targets they missed. But slow it down a little bit. This machine has 1,400 clay targets spinning in a circle. In front of ten men, it's incredible. Pheasant Fury, we call it. It's wow. on our Facebook page. But so there's three clay target ranges: the fishing side of everything, a lab launching dock, a hunting museum. In the museum, I've got Sam Walton's last box of shotgun shells. <clears throat> a letter from Johnny Morris, a Bass Pro Shop, thanking me for what I've done for the pheasant hunting hunting industry in America. I should be sending him a letter, not him sending me a letter, but <laughs> it's, it's there, handwritten by Johnny. It's not typed, it's handwritten. You know, Tom Watson, the golfer's there. Uh, first pair of aviation glasses to fly off an aircraft carrier. Mr. Ruff gave me his glasses on his last time. He was 93 years old and gave me his glasses. There's a story behind that. State of Arkansas made me a Doctor of Anger Management, Walmart badge in there. Doctor of Anger Management from Walmart, and Arkansas Traveler Award. And all the celebrities that got the Arkansas Traveler Award, and Bob Hope and Ronald Reagan, and all these famous people. And down at the bottom, there's my name. I teared up. I said, I am so not worthy of this. I'm just a dumb old country boy from Kansas. What is going on, people? Governor of Arkansas heard what we were doing, and. He presented all that to me. Newspapers were here doing a story about it. I was totally embarrassed, totally humbled that they would ever put my name on such a deal. And that I, it's there. I, I'm not, not bragging if it's fact, as John yeah. Wayne said. It, it's there. I'll show it to you. You know, uh, It's crazy, crazy what this place means to these people that come here all the time. It just, it's such a special relationship that you have with your customers when you're in their entertainment business like we are. so Right. 
Well, now, in all of that, do you still have the picture of me in my shorts in there? Uh, <laughs> I've been no, moved. No, but I will before you come back. <laughs> <laughs> Jimmy, if I can find it. I think you're right there next to Dolly Parton, aren't you? Uh, well, oh, I don't wow. We're both very unique in different features. So, uh, yeah, I'm sure that that would go right there to hand in hand. Together. Well, all the listeners are kind of wondering that inside joke that just now happened. But this guy comes from Mississippi. It's colder than cold outside. He's doing a big European shoot, and he walks in wearing a pair of shorts and high boots. We call him Short Short. I even wrote about him. We've got 200 members here. You don't have to be a member to hunt here, but there's 200 members that reap the benefit of being a member here. I even, I even had to put it in the member's newsletter, a picture of him standing in the museum with short shorts and high boots on. Well, it was also, uh, it was I snowing didn't know that what day. he was doing. <laughs> if you remember, it was snowing that day, and yeah, it had everybody messed up. Like, what are you doing in shorts? Please go put some pants on. <laughs> well, you could understand if you're from Alaska. I mean, cold is nothing. But when you're from Mississippi, the deep south right here, you should be out there saying, it's the coldest thing I've ever seen in my entire life. Where's the pullovers at? <laughs> but no, this Mississippi shooting giant shows up in shorts in the snowstorm. What's the odds of that? Very good if you know me very well. <laughs> we have traveled. That's how boys play in hunting camp. We you ought to see traveled... him do the pheasant dance. He can really cackle, too. I don't know if I ever had to do it. I think we went up winning every time. I don't think we had to do it. We've got this pheasant pendant with our name on it. Um, I have them made in New York City. I have them shipped down here. And at lunchtime, room's all full. You know, there's anywhere from 50 to 75, 80 hunters in the clubhouse. And my employees get on a speakerphone, like what you talked about on the European shoot, the speakerphone. And everybody get their first pheasant, come on up. And everybody lines up at the end of the hall. Sometimes there's two or three people. Sometimes there's 25 or 30. Usually there's 15 or 20, and I hide in the pro shop so they can't see me. Well, my employees got that speaker, and we're going to give you a pheasant pendant to remember the first time you ever shot your pheasant here. And I come out of the pro shop screaming, you can't give them away. My wife maxed out our credit card buying 3,000 of those pheasant pendants. <laughs> Well, what are we supposed to do? They got to earn it. Well, right now, 25 men are hanging their heads down thinking, I'm going to be roasted. Just, <laughs> they got to earn it. So how do we earn it? You put the wings under your arms and you cackle and you flap the wings and you dance around and you scream and holler. And all this is on our Facebook page. People are filming it from everywhere. It, it's so hilarious. But moral of the story, we want them to remember the first time they get their first pheasant. And that's all part of the entertainment that we tell everybody. It's not shooting birds to feed your family. It's all about the fun you have here and the entertainment you have here. Well, and let's do that real quick, Ms. Kim. Kind of walk our listeners through, okay, I've booked a hunt with you. I show up day one. Kind of walk us through, you know, a, a normal hunting experience. Probably the most common is guys will come up let's just use mississippi as an example they'll drive up that evening we have a beautiful hotel over in joplin missouri which is 20 minutes away and you can spend the night for a super rate like 44 dollars 
and two um, drink tickets and breakfast. It's, I mean, we send thousands of people there. So you spend the night at the hotel, get up, drive over here. Most of them will go to one of the clay target ranges, do a little warm-up shooting, uh, like I described to you. They'll come in and have lunch at noon, which is part of your program. And then at five minutes till one, I'll introduce the guides to everybody. And I do a talk for about five minutes about the difference in pursuit hunting behind these pointing dogs looking for these fast flying pheasants compared to deer, duck, turkey, duck. As I mentioned on the first episode, I've been a hunting consultant all my life, traveled 198 trips around the world, big game hunting. Well, I love all hunting. I'm not putting that sport down. But this is different. This is pursuit hunting. Every time you take a step, a dog mood, a bird mood, or you mood, it's three hours of, wow, what's going to happen next? So I describe that to them. And then they go out at 1 o'clock with the guides. We have six farms, 12 groups a day, and each guide, they follow the guide out to their particular farm and turn the bird dogs loose. And each one's been assigned a certain farm to go hunt. And that uh, that makes out the field. They come in, have a break halfway through, then come in about, about three hours later, and uh, coffee's on, desserts are served, all that type of thing. Morning hunters get here at 8 and hunt till around 11.30, come in and have lunch. Afternoon hunters, like I'm describing, a lot of those will come in and shoot clays, have lunch, and then their hunt starts at 1 o'clock till 4 o'clock. So we do morning and then we do afternoon. You can do a full day, you just buy two packages. But the most popular, especially for people that travel, you know, we're eight or ten hours from Jackson, Mississippi type thing. A lot of them will come in, do the clay shooting, have lunch, spend the night, come back the next day and do a second hunt. That way you get double time in the field, different farm, different guide. I try to mix it all up for you so you have a different experience every time you go. And that seems to be, you know, nine out of ten, <clears throat> ten want to make a weekend trip out of it type thing. The European side of it, total opposite. They get here at 9.30. I do that on purpose so field hunters aren't checking in the same time the European shooters are. We try to separate the two programs. And 9.30 check-in, 10 o'clock they go shoot pheasant fury, wobble trap. It's all included in the price of the European shoots. And then they come in and have the orientation meeting at 11 o'clock. I sit in the room with them. We have a home theater room for the European guys. And they watch a video. Years ago, I had a slide projector. <laughs> it's still on the wall. <laughs> but we have a video now, big screen TV, of what you're about to experience. The European shoots are unique. It's nature sporting clays course. It's an Argentina dove hunt without an airline ticket. It's just, it's just a wow. And I show them videos of what they're about to experience. It really helps people understand what it is we're doing. And then after the video, we draw for their shooting stations and uh, we go in and have the King's Feast. Again, I went to Spain to learn how to do all this uh, over 30 years ago. And King's Feast. Then at 1 o'clock, when the field hunters go out, at 1 o'clock, the European shooters go out too. And they get on a hunt wagon pulled by a tractor. And that takes them down just like they do in Scotland and England. That takes them down to the European course. And there'll be 10 dog handlers down there with 10 labs or retrievers of some sort. And uh, dog handlers introduce the gun dogs to the royalty, just like they do in England and Scotland and Spain. And then they scatter out over an 80-acre farm. We have a release area that's inside this heavy patch of timber so that people cannot see where the birds are coming from. It's totally natural. 
uh, the birds come out of that release area and they have 60 yards of flight before they ever see a hunter. And with my birds, my genetics, and my nutrition, those birds are doing 45 miles an hour, 30 to 90 yards in the sky. It's game on. As Jacob can tell you, you need an extended magazine on that shotgun. The birds have no the advantage. Doubt. <laughs> Somebody named Short Short Jacob actually missed a bird, if I remember right. I think I missed more than one. <laughs> I bet. I bet. Yeah, our, we've been keeping score for everybody. Our highest of all time was 798, 798 out of a thousand on the big shoots. And they shot 9,700 shells to get 796 birds. And these guys are shooters. I mean, these aren't bad shooters. These guys are coming with extended magazines like Jacob's doing. They're, they're, I wouldn't call them wow. professional shooters, but they're as close as you can get to being a professional shooter. They're, they're professional, I love to shoot type guys. Part of them, they, I have one group called the Arkansas Elite Shooting Team. We will be on every thousand bird shoot that Show Me Birds does unless we're at our funeral. <laughs> That's how they say it. And they're coming back three or four times this year. They are eight up with it of uh, how many shells they can shoot and how much action they can have. It's a unique target. It's just not normal to have a pheasant coming like that at that kind of speed and flight. It's it's unique. It's just kind of a one of a kind thing. That's why it's been so successful over the last thirty years. So No, there's there's no doubt on that shoot you can burn as much powder as you want to. <laughs> as I told you before, you know, the first year when we did it, you know, they said, you know, take your plug out and and load your gun, have your shells ready, and load your gun as fast as you can because you're going to have to. And there was just no way. There was absolutely no way with the number of birds that we had flying that you could load a gun that fast with only putting four or five shells in it and keep up with the birds that were flying over you. And it was it was absolutely amazing. So the next year, I think I showed up, and I want to say my, my tube extension either holds 13 or 14. So it, it made the game a little bit more my side it helped it out a little bit but you're still you're not, yeah i'm sorry i was wondering like on that shoot do, do the hunters rotate stations or do you remain at that station the entire hunt nope there's there's 10 stations and the shooters all rotate from place to place everything's okay. radio controlled again i went to spain to i learned how to do it in spain but i also learned how not to do it I say that because European people, we shoot for 30 minutes or an hour, and it's back to the lodge, tea and crumpets and drink, and they have a different mindset on how we do, you know, how I would want to do things. I'm an American hunter. I want action. I want to shoot. I want to have fun. That's what built this place. So we had to critique some of the things I learned with all that. And with them, you stay in one place the whole time. With me... All afternoon, you're going to rotate from one place to the next. Um, the dog handlers rotate to the left. The shooters rotate to the right. So at every station, you get to see a different dog perform. And that's very unique. Americans, bird hunters, we love to watch the dogs. And, of course, the dog handlers are professionals at talking with you and telling you stories and the lab set there retrieving birds. And you're poking shells in, trying to keep the gun loaded, and dogs are bringing birds in to you. On our webpage, showmebirds.com, there's video sections on there. We've made 17 national TV shows here. 
and you'll see some of the videos of some of those TV shows, and you can watch what I'm describing to you. And they're trying to load the gun, and dogs are look at that, look at that. Well, look up here, look up here, look over, look over. all that kind of stuff's going on the whole time you're out there. So it is a, a hoorah, absolutely, uh, of action and dog work. Yeah, I know. I'd went on uh, on a uh, on a pheasant hunt like that. I guess it was last year, year before last. And I found that to be as interesting as it was, you know, shooting the birds. Was it like you say, the, uh, I think the dogs were rotating to the left. We were rotating to the right or vice versa. And it was always a different dog you to get to see work. And that was just as much fun to me as, like you said, just sitting there watching the dogs work. But then you'd go from, you know, one station may be, you know, a, uh, a year old dog with, you know, he's there to get training. And then the next one you go to is a seasoned dog, and you sit there and see the differences between the two, and that just made it almost just as much fun as it was shooting the bird for me. Well, I can dog say this. Is a big part of that, absolutely. I can say this. If you are taking time on Mr. Kim's to watch the dog work, you better be loading your gun, looking at the dog, looking up, because if not, there's going to be a pheasant or two get by you while you're still watching the dog work. Yeah, this hunt wasn't quite like that. I had a little bit of time, but, you <laughs> on, know, watch, watch the dogs work. On a thousand bird shoot, you had better keep your eyes in the sky and you'd better learn how to grab your shells and load while you're looking up. Because if not, you've just had two or three get by you or five get by you and the dog handler will let you know if you have one fly by you and you don't shoot at it. Or if you miss, they're going to hackle you pretty good. So. <laughs> You know, I know the That's last because you never get a chance to see them shoot. <laughs> <laughs> it's always easier from that other side, but no, the last time we were there, uh, the guy that was shooting with me, he he shoots very well too, and you know, we had several of the handlers like, "Look, we like y'all. You know, y'all aren't letting anything by." And it, I think the last one, he had said, "Man, have y'all missed yet?" It's like, man, you know, we're trying not to jinx ourselves, but I don't think we've missed a day, and I think on that last station, we finally missed one that came our way and it was like we had to talk about it didn't we you know we, we had a good we had a good string running and we had to talk about it but he and i shot really well to kind of like when you and i shoot skeet together you know we shoot really well with each other so if one one does miss the other one picks it up so right but mr kim the the 10 stations and the rotating now that was that was a design that you got when you went over to Spain, or did you kind of tinker with that idea more to make it your own? It was I had to deal with the habitat that we have here in southeast Kansas compared to the habitat they have in Spain. Over there, most of it is birds are coming over the top of a cliff. And you're down low and the land is up above you because they didn't really have the creek bottoms with hedge trees in it, I call it, like we have here in southeast Kansas. Boark, a lot of people call them Boark. So that's what made it so funny when I came back. Everybody was making fun of me. I got a hammer and stick in the coin stake in the ground and I'm walking through here following my dreams, putting stakes in the ground, thinking where this shooting station is going to be. We need a bridge across the creek here. We need a pond here. We need a goose pit over here. We want to shoot pheasants out of a goose pit. Oh, we got to have an island. So let's build fantasy island. So here comes the bulldozer. So all this has been going on for 30 years. You know, it's not something you can go out here and just build in a, a month or two and start all this. It's been, you know, every year you add something to it. So the dream was planted while I was in Spain, 
but making it the American style. Again, like I said, they they look at things different over there. You got to shoot a side by side over here. Over here in America, we want an extended magazine. This is a game for automatics. Take the plugs out. This is how boys play. It's all about the shooting over there. It's all about shoot a couple of times, go back to the lodge. Just a different mentality. So I had to sort of think, how would an American wing shooter want this to be? And me being a, a wing shooter, I I knew that idea. So a lot of people make fun of me as I'm trying to design all this. They're not laughing anymore, but uh, they're at the very start. My dad was number one. Uh, you, you know, <laughs> you just lost your mind. What are you thinking? What are you doing? Uh, earlier story on the last episode, we talked about the railroad tie story. And, you know, everything I tried to do out there, he just didn't have any concept, you know, of, of what it was. But, again, he didn't travel all over the world and experience all these things like I did. You know, he a big thing to him was to drive 25 miles to go to dinner. He was with that great generation that built this country. And it was it was just a different attitude and a different ideas. He didn't he didn't follow that. None of a lot of the employees didn't. The first European shoot I ever had was nothing but employees. I wanted them to see what I'm talking about, and they made fun of it until they went out there and shot seven hundred, eight hundred shells and got a hundred and some birds. I said, "This is what happens when the bird has the advantage." Wow, they didn't comprehend that, and then it was game on. Then they were all for it. So, and again, most guys come and do a European shoot one day and then come and do a field hunt the next day. So, you know, it's, it's both programs running side to side. It's, it's just very unique and yet totally different, both done with pheasants. Well, Mr. Kim, you probably have a tree, and I know you know which tree I'm talking about, on the European, <laughs> that should go down in some type of history book for having the most <laughs> amount of shot in it of any tree yeah. in the world. I've got a sign hanging from it. I don't know if it was here when you were here. Only tree like this in the world. It's a bow arc tree. It's probably three feet in diameter right next to the a nice little creek. So it's never had drought. It's never had any problems growing. And it is totally killed by shotguns. And I've got a, it's on the European course, but I've got pictures of it here in the clubhouse. <laughs> I would love it's to know how many, lay it. <laughs> I would love to know uh-huh. how many thousands of times that tree has been shot and cussed or, or bad things said about that tree. Cause I know myself personally, I've said bad things about that tree. Cause it seems like the pheasants just love to fly right to it and you can't shoot through it. Yeah, I've tried, uh, I right on a bird and shot and then had to pick him up when he passed the tree. So. Oh, you're talking about the, I'm talking about the tree at Rooster's Revenge, Station 4. You're talking about the tree down at Tree Killer, Station 7, on the other side of Fantasy Island. Okay, I'm on the wrong tree. You're on the wrong tree, but apparently you have two trees that need to make it. There's two of them. Yeah, I cut (laughs) that tree down in July. Oh, yes. Uh, Yeah, look how you get excited. Well, my employees did it actually been killed so much and shot so much. I was worried about tree branches falling on people. We go down there. There's another tree down at Tree Killer. There's another tree down at Tree Killer. So I actually sent a crew down, and they cut that tree down. Plus, it knocked down another tree when it fell. So now Tree Killer has an open area just so Jacob can come up here and not have any excuses for missing a feather. We that got you sounds, covered, buddy. That sounds sweet to me. <laughs> I've got an open area to fire through. I'm not trying to shoot through the tree that, limbs. 
<laughs> that tree actually had plastic wads embedded into the bark. Oh, I've got yes. it on, oh, I'm I've telling got you, it, it was Jeremy. Yeah. It was right in your swing. I mean, every time it was like, good God, you know, can we move the blind over ten feet? You know, I think I even asked one of the handlers if he minded if I stood about five feet to the right of the tree. <laughs> it was out of my line of sight. I didn't have to. That's what my dad told me. He said, "Son," he said, "You got to move that station when I'm putting them sticks in the ground, measuring everything." You know, and I said, "Dad, you don't understand. We'll be talking about this." For every hunter that comes out here, how you had to shoot through a tree, it'll be fun. And it was for 25 years, you know, but after a while, the tree said, I've had enough. <laughs> well, and, you know, just, Mr. Kim, I've had people ask me over the years, you know, hey, so what makes that hunt unique? What what makes that so, you know, inviting and makes you want to drive 10 hours to go back and do it again? And I'm like, folks, y'all just don't, if you love to shoot, you'll get it. If you don't love to shoot, it may not be the thing for you. But if you want to go and shoot your shotgun as many times as you can possibly do it, it's the place to go. There is there is no doubt that you're going to get all the shots you want to take. And if you don't want to take your plug out and shoot, then fine. There's going to be a lot of birds fly over you. The people in your group are probably going to fuss at you a little bit because you didn't take the shots. But you're going you're going to want to you're going to heat that barrel up. There's no, there's no ifs ands or buts about it because I know to shoot a case of shells in the ten stations is not hard at all to do. That's that's almost a minimum I would guess. Because I know exactly. I was shooting twenty five to forty shots I, per per station. It was what I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I, what I was saying. I know I've shot you know twenty five to forty shells per station without blinking an eye. I mean that's just. You're going to load as fast as you can and shoot as fast as you can. That is basically, well, perfect example. Why did I name it Show Me Birds 30 years ago? It's not named after Missouri. <laughs> <laughs> I, I knew what hunters wanted. Hunters want action, and that's on my videos and everything that we do. Like I say, I was a hunting consultant for years, and I wanted this to be action. I wanted hunters to come here and see something that they don't see in a normal South Dakota, Western Kansas, Nebraska, Iowa, wherever you're going. You know, uh, Kansas estimates 10.2 miles of walking per bird. That's not fun. That's not fun. Uh, that's not what you want to bring your family, your son, your daughter. Show them what upland bird hunting is. Unfortunately, our upland bird numbers have crashed over the years due to the drought and things that we've had in our native bird. There are no wild pheasants because I can tell you that's a whole other story. But um, it's just, you know, that's not fun to go out there and just walk and walk and walk. It takes the fun out of it for the kids. When you come here, you see action. You have shooting. You see birds. And the birds are real. The birds are fast and strong and hard flying, and it's just, uh, you know, it's what I build it to be so that you can bring your family here. You can come here and, and have a great time. Uh, no bag limit, all that kind of thing. Why, yeah, well, yeah, this is different. But uh, upland bird hunting, as we know it in general, is a, a dying sport, unfortunately. That's pheasant forever and quill unlimited and all that. You know, our bird numbers are crashing. Fortunately, big game numbers, deer and waterfowl and all that kind of thing are not. Uh, 
But upland bird hunting, for various reasons, is really a changing sport for us. I've had so many dads <laughs> give me a hug as they're walking out the door. Thank you for saving this sport for my family. Thank you for showing us what bird hunting was back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, you know, and that type of thing. So uh, it makes me feel good to know that they feel that way. Well, and Mr. Kim, to step off from the European, if you want to get a good feel of upland bird hunting, the field hunts are phenomenal also. You know, not only do you have the opportunity to do the European style, but to actually watch the dogs work in the field, moving back and forth, scenting, pointing, doing what they love to do, you can step over and do a different hunt with you. Like you said, you know, golf and bowling are both involve balls, but they're they're different type of activities altogether. You know, when we got to do that first field hunt with you, it was like, okay, this is this is more I had hunted South Dakota when I used to work up there, so it was more had that same feel and same, you know, allure and attractiveness to it. And I remember the first day that we when we hunted, the the dog guy, the guy that was with us, you know, he had three beautiful pointers. And he told us real quick, he said, Look, let the bird get up. Do not shoot the birds while they're still low because sometimes these dogs will actually flush one and jump up at it so let it get above your eyes before you even you think about shooting and it's like okay well then he went on to explain to us that okay these three dogs are all valued between five thousand to ten thousand dollars so if you mess up and shoot one of my dogs i'll let you know when you shoot it which one you just bought and I remember yeah. the three of us looking at each other like, okay, we plan to be safe anyway, but now we just put an extra emphasis, exclamation point on that. Do not shoot anywhere near a dog. So he had our attention from the first moment on keeping safe, not only with each other and him, but also with the dogs also. And, you know, to me, watching the dogs work is that's one of my favorite parts, you know, watching them retrieve on the European style is one thing, but, but watching a dog actually work a field and go back and forth and, and get on point and stay on point till either the bird flushes or you send in a dog to flush a bird. That's just, it, it's one of my favorite things. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I tell people too, with the bird population, the way it is in the country, a lot of guys that own dogs, you know, that dog's five years old and it's points 10 birds a season, 20 birds a season, whatever. You know, here, the dogs that work here, if they go five minutes without locked up on point, they think there's something wrong. <laughs> what is going on here? Because they live with birds in front of them all their life. You take a dog that's five years old, he's had thousands of birds in front of him. So it, it's a dog show that you don't normally see because these dogs have so much opportunity to just be one-of-a-kind type bird dogs. Then you add the habitat. I farm all summer long with, you know, with these tractors planting blackwell switchgrass and milo strips. We don't farm corn. We're not an Iowa corn farmer. We're, you know, a pheasant hunting resort. So we have the habitat to match the hunt, not agriculture. And so many people in my industry are farmers supplementing their income. Farming comes first, and I'll take a few hunters, you know, later on in the year. But when you come to 
you know, America's largest pheasant resort like we are, oh my gosh, you've got to have the habitat to handle thousands of hunters, thousands of birds, uh, and have birds that are habitat that will hold that running pheasant. That's part of my talk that I do before the traditional field hunts go out. Uh, we've got this cover that makes that pheasant goes by sight. and He's down in that grass. He doesn't know there's three dogs on point and four men standing there. And then he blows up in your face. I got a picture in my clubhouse. Jacob, you've already, I know I've seen it with a pheasant knocking a guy down. And that's why that picture hangs there so I can show these guys, you know, this is habitat designed for what we're doing. And then match that with a pheasant from genetic selection for 30 years, nutrition program for 30 years. It's 48% protein. This ain't, picture this in your mind, a baby chick in a South Dakota prairie, when it's hatched, it's an insect eater. It can't eat a piece of corn. It's only three inches tall. It eats anything it can find, water bugs, whatever. It's insect eaters, first part of its life. When there's a drought, there's no insects. And that's what's happened to our bird population since 2014 when the biggest droughts hit the Dakotas and the plains out here. And that's what happened. My bird, the first bite it gets is 48% protein. Like I said earlier on our other podcast, these birds are on steroids. This is like Texas whitetails. Their genetic selection and nutrition make a whitetail look like a red stag. Same thing here. We've got the 48% protein, the first bite they take. And you combine that with genetic selection, I can show you a bird. And that's why people laugh when I tell them nine, ten thousand shells in three hours on these European thousand bird shoots because the bird is so strong. The bird is not the normal pen raised bird that, um, has been the traditional, bleh, I'm not going to hunt pen raised birds. I've heard it ten thousand times at hunt shows. Don't judge me and my bird by what you have seen at some other places. Because there's a world of difference, a world of difference. And that's because me being a professional hunter all my life, I wanted to show you when you come here, a bird that's just like a wild pheasant and a habitat that makes that wild pheasant hold for a pointing dog, not walk a mile along in a cornfield and hope I see something when I get to the end of it. I call that the military siege. <laughs> it looks like an army going across that cornfield. You know, uh, it's fun, but nah. I want to see three dogs on point, <laughs> you know, that type of thing. So, again, the traditional field hunts compared to the European shoots is like bowling and golf. They're both totally unique. Well, and Mr. Kim, you know, we're we're running down to the end here, but, you know, the experience that I've had out at your place, it has been phenomenal. And I think that the name that you have is so perfect in so many ways because, Show me birds is not only you, not only are you going to show me birds, but the whole the whole hunt is a show. You know, you said it earlier. You're you're in the entertainment business and entertaining your customers so that they're coming back. The hunters are wanting to come back and do it again. I don't think you could have come up with a much more perfect name for what you offer. <laughs> well, thank you. That's. Uh, that sort of grew from a dream. I mean, that wasn't the intent when we started, but that was a uh, sort of grew from the dream. I had a guy just the other day, we're only about an hour and a half, two hours from Branson. And a lot of people go to Branson and do the entertainment shows and then come up here. Girls are shopping in Branson. The boys come hunting and show me. And he said, man, he said, 
I ought to tell my wife, they don't have to go to a Branson show. They can just come up here and sit back on the table and laugh and laugh and laugh at how crazy you got <laughs> up here entertaining people. And I say, well, that's what it's all about. You know, you're you're not feeding your family if you shoot a pheasant. You're here to have fun. You're on vacation. Get out of that house, have a ball, and just enjoy life. And that's what this is all about. We take all the worry and stew and, you know, it's no bag limit. You can don't have to ask permission. There's a farm waiting for you. Uh, we shoot hens here legally. We shoot roosters here. You know, gun dogs are... Oh my gosh, they've had thousands of birds shot in front of them and guides are professionals and the farms are immaculate just for what you're doing and then flip the channel over here and look at these European program and shoot off an island. You know, where do you do that? Now the goose pit, where do you do that? Where do you do thousands of shells and thousands of birds and retrievers going everywhere? It's show me birds. It's unique. It's unique. It is definitely a one-of-a-kind experience. So, folks, if y'all have listened to this, Mr. Kim, let's tell them all again how they can locate you and, and get up with you. The easiest way, of course, is going to be the Internet. Imagine that. Yeah, like I said earlier, <laughs> winter years ago, no, hunters ain't going to go to no computer. And see, I didn't even know what a computer was years ago when I started all this, but now, I think there's a lot of people that do know what the Internet is. I would just sort of think, maybe, maybe, maybe. But showmebirds.com, and you'll see a gigantic website there, about 30 pages. You'll see TV shows there we filmed. You'll see me talking on TV and um, all that kind of thing. It's it's really uh, an active website. Google says around 3,000, 3,500 Internet hits a month. So it's a pretty popular place. Good deal, Miss Kim. Look, man, we appreciate it and, and enjoyed the heck out of it. We uh, we may have to catch back up with you later on and you know, update us and see how everything's going. Anytime, guys. Anytime. I I love visiting with you, and I appreciate you guys uh, keeping the sport of hunting alive, and not just my hunting, but everybody's hunting. We got to keep that outdoors going. We got to get our youth outside, and especially in the troubled times we're in now, it's more important than ever to show people the outdoors is still here absolutely well everybody we hope you enjoyed this episode of outdoor country talk and god bless god bless well ain't nothing like a southern air lord to make you feel all right i got the windows down i got the radio on